Julie Rose, and this is Top of Mind. I have been a radio journalist for two decades, but a few years ago, I found myself avoiding the news for long stretches because of how depressing and divisive it all seems. I still wanted to be informed and engaged on important issues, though, and I figured I couldn't be alone in that. So we created this podcast. Each week, we tackle one tough topic in a way that will challenge you, help you feel more empathy, and empower you to become a better citizen, a kinder neighbor, and a more effective advocate. Today, motivating kids in school. So when a student walks into my class, I mean, they've already pre-labeled themselves as a good student or a bad student. This is Sarah Schopfer. She's been teaching high school English for a little over a decade. Early on, she started to notice the way she was grading her students wasn't working like she'd hoped. A student who is constantly at that F level because it's so hard on a traditional zero to 100% scale to climb out of that F level range, which is 59% of the scale is an F. Um, how demotivating is that? Like no matter what you do, if you are averaging grades out, that student is never going to be able to pull themselves out, right? So that definitely resulted in a lot of kids giving up. And then on the flip side, those high achieving kids who are going to do whatever you tell them to do because that's who they are, their motivation is less about learning and more about how many points can I get if I do this? Or I have enough points to not do the final. And so then it's like the motivation to learn gone, but we have the point chasers at the top. And then at the bottom, we have kids who are so defeated by the time they get to my class in junior year that they do the bare minimum or end up not even graduating high school, which is which is unacceptable. And so it was super, super, super important that we we change what we're doing because it's not it's not working. We all want kids to succeed in school. But could the ways we measure that success, like grading, be getting in the way of learning? Across the U.S., school districts are increasingly adopting grading floors, making it impossible to score less than 50% on any kind of assignment. And grade inflation is on the rise, which means kids can get away with doing less and still get A's. On top of that, the rate of students who are chronically absent in U.S. public schools has doubled from before the pandemic. So today on Top of Mind, how can we motivate students to show up to school and, most importantly, want to learn? Sarah Schopfer was struggling to answer that question for her own students when she decided to start experimenting with changes to her grading system. Schopfer teaches English to juniors and seniors at Colfax High School. Which is a rural school in Northern California on the way to Lake Tahoe, most people know it by. And I, this is my 12th year teaching. And it sounds like the class bell has gone off. We're getting you during <laughs> a free period here, a prep yeah, period. Totally. <laughs> Schopfer says her students are mostly white, but there is a lot of diversity in terms of socioeconomic class, which is a major reason that the first big change she made to how she graded was getting rid of extra credit assignments. I was very aware of like certain opportunities that some students would have and some students would not. Like, for example, the whole extra credit if your parents come to back to school night or extra credit if you bring in three boxes of tissues. And, you know, I, I mean, I came from a very supportive, loving home, but like my parents worked super late and could never come to back to school night. And I remember feeling like upset about it. And so those types of things very early on were like, I'm not going to do that. I don't want to be that kind of teacher. How did the students respond to that? How did the parents respond? 
Well, the high level, like a always get an A kids because they're really good at extra credit. We're like, felt so robbed and disenfranchised. Like, how am I going to get an A? And I'm like, sweetheart, you're going to get an A by doing the work, right? <laughs> and so, and so then they realized like, oh yeah, I don't need extra credit. It was like kind of a cushion for them, right? And as soon as I explain it, it takes me two seconds to explain it. They're like, oh yeah, you're right. That's really not that fair. I can't give you extra credit for going to this Shakespeare play, even though I would love to go to a Shakespeare play with you because not all of you can get there. Not all of you can afford to get there, right? So if I'm going to offer that opportunity and it's that meaningful to their learning, we got to figure out how to do a fundraiser and I'll get there together, or uh, it's not meaningful enough for everybody to do. She also stopped assigning scores or points to things related to behavior and participation. Like any time a student would raise their hand or um, in the past, um, you know, marking students down for points if they were tardy. Participation can also include that like late work thing like, oh, you didn't do your classwork today, so I'm taking five points off. You're, you're just not going to try to hold kids accountable for those things? So this is one of the biggest things I get when I talk about it. People are like, oh my gosh, the soft skills. Like we're just letting them run amok in here. What actually ends up happening is we are teaching these skills. I'm just not attaching a grade to them, right? And so then people are like, well, then how do you get kids to do it? And I hate that we have created this world where students only do things because they get a grade. Like it's not valuable to just learn something to learn something, or it's not valuable to behave in a certain way or learn a certain skill because you're not getting graded on it. Um, and we have to stop that. Whether I assign grade points to them or not, the kids who are going to talk a lot are going to talk a lot. The kids who are not going to talk a lot are not going to talk a lot, right? Um, marking kids down for tardies is not fair because we don't know why they're tardy. Instead of uh, marking them down for being tardy, we have a conversation with a student about this is what being tardy means. This is what you're communicating to me as your teacher. This is what could happen in the future in the workforce if you're tardy all the time. Um, you know, you get to hang out with me during um, our nutrition break today to make up for that missed time. Or, you know, they might go to the office if they have a bunch of tardies and get a detention. None of that has to do with the grade and actually encourages a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a student, which is a lot more meaningful than just saying, you were late, here's five points off something. As Chopra was experimenting with different ways to motivate and hold her students accountable, her district began looking for volunteers to pilot a new grading system. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm totally in. And then I, I finally had the answer of like how to do it. The new system eliminates the standard A through F letter grades in favor of a four-point scale focused on specific learning outcomes like reading comprehension or writing thesis statements. So a one means that the student needs a lot of help and support to get that task or learning outcome done. A two means they understand like the foundational knowledge of that skill, but they still kind of need help like applying it. So that's going to be like they understand the vocabulary, they understand the timeline, they understand the people. And then a level three is going to be more about like how well a student is applying that information and that they can do it on their own without me helping them. Um, and then a level four is going to be more about um, them taking their learning and applying it in a new meaningful way that is beyond what I have taught them in class specifically. So like throughout the whole year, it's like, here's our learning outcome. And right now you're at a two. I would like you to revise until you get to a three. And so then the students can, can meet with me revise, resubmit until they meet that learning outcome. Can you, can you introduce an assignment to us 
at a three? Like, like how you would actually say that? Help me understand what that means. Sure. So we just finished uh, The Great Gatsby, which is my favorite book of all time, my students will tell you. Their final project is at the very beginning of the book, I gave them a list of like, we call them big ideas that might come up in the text. And those big ideas will become the basis of their final project. And for this particular project, they can demonstrate their learning in a variety of ways. So if they chose a big idea off of that list that I gave them, that's where the three starts because I'm already telling them what to pay attention to in the book. And then if they write their essay or they create an art piece and write a rationale that's based on something we talked about thoroughly in class, that's going to be a three because they are applying their foundational skills and knowledge about the text, but they're not going like to anything we didn't talk about in class. So if they wanted a four, if they were striving for a four, I encouraged them as we were reading to pay attention to things that I don't bring up as a teacher, but you're noticing a lot of. So like some of them would bring up like, I noticed that Fitzgerald uses a lot of color. What's up with the colors? And I'm like, I don't know what, what's up with the colors, right? So then what happens is at the end, they come up with their own big idea that they end up presenting to me, which is a more advanced level of learning because they didn't have my support and handholding along the way. Like one of my car kids, he's in auto shop right now, super, you know, like motorhead, right? And he's looking at me like, I am not reading this book. And I'm like, you're going to read the book and it's going to be great. But he's looking at the cars in the book and paying attention to like all the the dynamics with the cars and what the cars mean symbolically and stuff. And then made the the most wonderful project. Um, and so it's it allows them to connect in all different ways, you know, depending on what they're inter- interested in. So, and a kid who would never... He would never go for a four before, went for the four and did fantastic. So that's, it's really great. Are your students learning more? Are they leaving with more than they, than they were before? I think they are. It's less about point chasing and it's about giving more authentic assessments that truly, truly allow students to demonstrate their learning. And it's made my teaching more authentic. I love that I can ask them anytime in my class Have I ever been unreasonable? Have I ever given you work that wasn't meaningful to your learning? And they have been able to say to me, no, you've never been unreasonable and you've never given us busy work. That's the promise I give them on the first day of school. And so with that buy-in from them and that trust of me as their teacher and that trust in me for them to do the work has led to such great relationships with the kids, so much more success than Um, students would have had in the past and truly sending them on truly, truly ready, not just to be an English student or a student in general, but like a decent human being that has skills and knowledge that I can stand behind and say, yes, they do know how to do these things. And here is my evidence. Whereas before, I don't think I could have done that. Does this kind of teaching require more of your outside time and energy? It's not more work. It's just different you know, and actually more meaningful in my opinion, because I find the grading of all these projects where kids are passionately finding their own things that they want to look into are more fun to grade and more authentic to their learning. So that, that feels great, right? And if I'm spending my Saturday morning away from my family grading, that it's at least worthwhile. And then it's more of a coaching and less of a teaching, right? Like they're asking me questions about the book instead of me trying to pull things out of them. Like, did anybody notice? And they're coming up to me saying, did you notice this? And sometimes they point out things that after reading this book 37 times, I did not 
never noticed, which is pretty amazing, right? So I would never go back. It's, it's the best teaching experiences that I've ever had in the last five years. Sarah Schofer, thank you so much for taking time today. I really appreciate it. No problem. Sarah Schofer teaches 11th and 12th grade English at Colfax High School in Northern California. So there is one big downside to the grading system she's so pleased with. At the end of the term, she still has to translate all of those one through four scores into a letter grade that goes on a transcript her students can show colleges or even just other school districts if they move. We accept grades as a part of the, the standard order of things, right? Despite the fact that there may be lots of reasons to step away from grades. Why are we so hung up on grades? I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. Hey friends, I would like to take just a moment and introduce you to another show from the BYU Radio family of podcasts. It's The Lisa Show. Lisa Valentine Clark is the host. She's a comedian, actress, believer, single mom. And the show delves into the multitude of challenges that shape our lives, whether it's parenting, mental health questions, social issues. Lisa and the Council of Moms will tackle it and do it with a lot of laughs along the way as we attempt to figure out this thing called life. So check out The Lisa Show. Listen wherever you get podcasts. On the one hand, we hate them. This is Jack Schneider, professor of education at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Grades for some of us, feel like the sword of Damocles dangling above our heads. We recognize that tests don't really measure what most of us know. We recognize that the permanent record is often used as a cudgel. But also, we've been through school. We know what a quote-unquote real school looks like. That's exactly why. We can't just expect people to let go. But we're not just being stubborn when we cling to the traditional A through F grading system, says Schneider. There are these purposes that assessment technologies serve. You can't actually just pull grades out entirely. You can't pull test scores out. You can't pull transcripts out without having pretty serious consequences in that the problems that they were originally solving will no longer be solved. Schneider says grades evolve to do three things, motivate, communicate, and synchronize. And the big issue is those roles often conflict. So in a sense, we're relying on grades to do too much. Here's how we got into this mess. First, grades were solving a problem of motivation. In the 19th century, you see the emergence of state laws requiring that young people go to school. Well, with compulsory education comes a problem. How are we going to get all of these students, many of whom would very much like to be anywhere but school, to apply themselves, to <laughs> comport themselves in a manner that is going to make it possible for the educators in the room to teach everybody else? So these new grammar school teachers were casting about for a solution and saw what colleges like Harvard were doing. And I think 
Listeners may be inclined to think, well, these must have been very serious young scholars, <laughs> these Harvard students from a couple hundred years ago. No, they were really no different than today's undergrads, right? They wanted to party and drink and carouse and, you know, they would do things like tie up their professors and burn down their, their lodgings. And grades really emerged as a set of carrots and sticks to try to motivate students to work hard and also function as public shaming devices to punish students who didn't work hard. That eventually works its way down in the system as we see students compelled by law to be in K-12 schools. So, so that, that's one problem that grades were solving. A second problem that grades were solving was that of communication. And it's because schools once more are dealing with this question of how are we going to get kids to behave? How are we actually going to assist them in learning what we want them to learn? And in order for that to happen, you've got to be in communication with the home. And so grades were an effort to let families know how students were doing, sometimes as a means of telling parents they better get involved and, you know, whip their kids into shape, hopefully only metaphorically speaking there. And other times it was an effort to let parents know that students were struggling in particular areas and would need some assistance. That's one of the functions that grades continue to serve. Yeah, sort of a like a red flag warning to make better progress or to, I mean, was some of it about assuring the parents and taxpayers that the school is doing right by your kid? Um, we're sending home evidence of what your kid is learning or not learning. Especially as schools started to get larger and couldn't rely as much on face-to-face -face interaction. That's true, mm -hmm. right? So, Anytime you have the ability to just directly communicate with somebody, you don't need anything like grades. You don't need a system of communicating through symbols. But once you start moving to more and more distant forms of communication, and that can happen either because you've got too many pupils in the school and you just simply can't arrange to have these face-to-face -face relationships with every family, or because you're actually communicating with more distant audiences. And this is another form of communication that starts to happen is communication with audiences that are more distant geographically as well as more distant temporally, right? So communicating with the future, with future employers, with future college admissions officers about what students know and can do. And that really doesn't evolve until like the early 20th century, but it is a part of this communication function. And so you can see all Already, there are multiple kinds of competing purposes of grades. And then the third one also emerges in the 19th century and becomes more prevalent in the 20th century. And that's the need for synchronization because we have a totally decentralized education system in this country. Okay, if you moved as a kid, you felt the effects of that decentralization. Unlike many other countries, education in the U.S. operates on a local level. It's funded largely through local tax dollars, and individual states decide what's taught in school, which can vary pretty dramatically from state to state, even district to district. So Schneider says letter grades provide a common language. If what you want is for a student to be able to move from one level of schooling to another, to move from one town to another— 
you're going to need to have some systematic way of sharing information about students and what they're able to do. And grades kind of fit the bill on that front as well. So of these three primary purposes that grades evolved to to serve and that we continue to expect them to serve, um, are grades, which of those three things do grades do really well? Ah. Grades don't do any of those things really well. Not none of them. All right. It's not like they're great at motivating, but terrible at the other stuff. No. And one of the problems is that these are cross purposes in many cases. Let let me just give you an example of how even two different communication purposes can end up undermining each other. So let's take the the short haul communication. So this is just communicating directly to the student or the student's family and the long haul communication, you know, the permanent record that will communicate to college admissions officers or future employers. Now imagine that a teacher wants to communicate to a student, this isn't your best work. I believe in you and I think you can do better. And so I'm going to give you a C, right? It's not an F, you haven't failed, but it's not an A. Unfortunately, The student is well aware of the fact that this grade, even if it's just on an essay, will impact the ultimate course grade, which will live on a transcript, which will be permanent, and which that student will have to show to various entities. So these two purposes then end up undermining each other because the message, which is intended as, I think you can do better, let's get together and let's work on improving this, is being heard in a very different way by the student. What the student is hearing is, I'm gonna ruin your life, right? And if you don't play ball in my class, you're going to suffer the consequences. And so students are smart enough to realize, oh, I need to go argue about this, or I need to cheat, or, I need to figure out exactly what's going to be on this test and study for just those things and ignore everything else. And so we really need to begin to ask, are we losing more than we're gaining in the way that we use grades? And and who are the students most likely to be demotivated by grades? Yeah, it's really important to name, right? Uh, That the students who face the stiffest headwinds in school are students who face the stiffest headwinds outside of school, right? So we're talking about students from low-income neighborhoods, from multilingual households, um, students who have special needs. We're talking about the students who actually are most deserving in our society of additional support encouragement, resources. And again, the unintended consequence of the way that we use assessment is often to demotivate those students, to tell them that they're not good at school, to encourage them to leave school as soon as possible. And they should be top of mind for us right alongside the you know academically accomplished students who have learned to game this system, who are actually learning a whole lot less than we would like them to. Now, Schneider is a pragmatist about this dilemma. Grades are an imperfect tool, yes, but ditching them, he says, is unrealistic and would cause other problems. The best solution is inevitably going to look a little bit more like tinkering than like overhaul. And, you know, that's something we wrestled with when we wrote this book was that, you know, we, we thought we'd sell more books if we said, here it is, here's the panacea. 
right? Here's our big, sexy solution that is going to very simply and cleanly solve this problem for anybody. The problem is we'd be lying. The book he's referring to is called Off the Mark, How Grades, Ratings, and Rankings Undermine Learning But Don't Have to. He co-wrote it with Ethan Hutt, and they propose a bunch of tweaks to traditional grades, keeping in mind the three jobs that grades do, motivate, communicate, and synchronize. With communication, for instance, it is possible to imagine that teachers could communicate with students via even something like grades, as long as there was a guarantee this is not going to be permanent. That's one of the ways you then neutralize the problem that results from just ham-handedly using the same tool for all of these different purposes. So the tweak would be make the grade that students earn on classroom assignments overwritable, Mm -hmm. right? Just like like a, a disc can be overwritable. And the example that I often give is once upon a time, I did not know how to ride a bicycle. And if you had given me a grade for that, right, an F, I didn't know how to do it. And that grade were permanent. I would still have to go around. And when people asked if I knew how to ride a bike, I would have to say, no, I got an F. I got an F in bike riding. But new information has overwritten that old information. Of course I know how to ride a bike. And that information overrides the old information, which then it restores the possibility of real communication there while also recognizing, hey, there can be this other way that we approach assessment and grading for the purpose of creating or constructing a permanent record. Another tweak would be to embed more information in report cards and transcripts. Some private and charter schools have shifted toward grading students based on portfolios of their work rather than tests and quizzes. Most universities, though, still want a transcript. But why not merge the two, says Schneider? especially since everything's digital now. You can make the transcript double-clickable. So right now there is such thin information in transcripts, and this leads to a number of unintended consequences, right? A student with a B might be perceived as being bad at something when in fact that student may have most of the competence and there may just be one area that that student needs to work in. Or it could be students have learned that if the transcript only has a letter grade, it doesn't matter how you got to the A. Whereas if we were to make the transcript double clickable such that Anybody who wanted to look at it could see actual works of art from your art class or essays from your English class or chemistry labs from your chemistry class that suddenly it matters a whole lot more that you actually learned how to do this stuff. Could we, Professor Schneider, if what we really want to communicate with grades is that this student is this much capable of doing this thing... Couldn't we do that just with some sort of test? Like just do an end of year and, you know, this is how good you are at algebra based on the test that you took at the end of the year. And then we don't have this problem of all the learning being sort of rolled into it where because you struggled at the beginning, now your grade is lower at the end. That presumes that tests are perfect measures of what students know and can do. The best assessments are going to give students multiple opportunities to show what they know and can do and are also going to be based on real performance. So if what you had was, you know, a battery of assessments that gave students different kinds of opportunities to show their learning 
And if you were not reliant on a really narrow way of reading those tests, i.e. through a Scantron form, I I think it's not a terrible idea to say, hey, really, we're going to check in at the end of the course to see how well you know this. That's not a bad approach. Mm -hmm. We also, however, want to be thinking about things like, how do we motivate students? And one of the things that will be motivating about an approach like that is to say, learning this stuff is going to matter because at the end of the course, you are going to be asked to complete a wide array of assessments to show what you know and can do. But even that isn't going to solve the motivation piece, right? Ultimately, the best solution for the motivation piece is actually to stop relying on grades or test scores or the threat of the permanent record and to say, here's why learning this subject actually is valuable. And that's not to say, well, you know, you're going to use this kind of math at the gas station someday, or you're going to need to calculate tips (laughs) in your head. Because math teachers think math matters. And if they can learn to articulate why math is useful and beautiful, why it enables you to think in new ways and saying, hey, this, this matters for a bunch of reasons, and I'm going to do my best to articulate those reasons to you over the course of the semester. Um, but, you know, it's also going to require you trusting me a little bit. And in order to get you to trust me, right, I'm also going to trust and respect you. There are classrooms where this is the, the approach. It's, it's not every kindergarten, but every kindergarten I've ever been in takes this approach. No kindergarten teacher, well, no kindergarten teacher that I have seen says, all right, everybody, we're going to be working on the grasshopper unit, and you better believe this is going to end up on your permanent records, (laughs) right? They say, we're going to be working on the grasshopper unit, and here's why this is so fun and exciting, right? And kindergartners, in many ways, should be the, the least excited to go to school, but they are the most excited to go to school. Every once in a while, there will be one who doesn't want to let go of a parent, but the rest of them are sort of gleefully running in, hugging their teachers, excitedly going about the business of their classrooms. And I don't think that just removing grades is going to lead to joyful classrooms, but I think that our reliance on these assessment technologies is one of the things that keeps us from seeing as clearly as we might how little we do to instill students with a clear sense of why they're learning what they're learning and to infuse our classrooms with the kind of joy that can be hugely motivating to young people. That's hard. It's not easy. But that is a big part of the work that needs to be done. Professor Schneider, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was great. Jack Schneider is a professor of education and director of the Center for Education Policy at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. He's also co-host of the podcast, Have You Heard?, and co-author of Off the Mark, How Grades, Ratings, and Rankings Undermine Learning But Don't Have To. Now, when we talk about motivation, we often hear things like a student doesn't want to do the work or doesn't want to come to school. But what if it's deeper than that? There is a very, very big problem, a misunderstanding that adults have is the misunderstanding between can't and won't. Unfortunately, 
traditional grading systems can blur that line and end up trapping some kids in a cycle of failure. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. We'll be right back to today's episode of Top of Mind. But first, are you ready to immerse yourself in the awe-inspiring world of nature? Then I recommend you listen to Constant Wonder. It's another great show from the BYU Radio family of podcasts. Join host Marcus Smith in riveting conversations with individuals whose lives have been touched by Earth's beauty and mysteries. Uncover captivating stories that shed light on our planet's wonders, from history to science and beyond. If you crave enriching experiences and a deeper connection with the world around you, tune in to Constant Wonder. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. There are many teachers and parents who would believe that if this kid is failing, they are, quote, failing. The kid is failing. This is Seth Perler. He's a former teacher turned coach for struggling kids, especially those with ADHD or challenges with executive function. They're not doing what they're being asked to do. They won't try. They won't motivate themselves. They've got so much potential. Why won't they just pick themselves up by the bootstraps? And why can't they just try harder? But it's not a won't. It's a can't. They cannot accomplish the whole of the task. Seth Perler says he was one of those kids. Cognitively, he understood the subjects. In fact, he did fine on tests. But if it was a class that required homework, it it, it was not good. I couldn't remember, for example, what was for homework or what we were doing in the moment in class. I couldn't self-start, task initiate, get started, get the train going, and I couldn't complete things and get them turned in. He lacked what he now understands are basic skills known collectively as executive function. And the consequence of that was that the letter on the report card would tell you that I didn't learn anything, that I was incapable of mastering the content, whereas that was not true. However, the things needed to show that, those skills that some people seem to magically have, but a lot of us don't, I for one did not, makes me look in that context like a failure. Plenty of my brain was developing in all sorts of different amazing ways. But those executive skills, my brain needed a lot more time to develop those skills. I would get these messages, you're not trying hard enough, you're lazy, you don't care enough, Uh, you need to work harder. And these sorts of messages felt blindsiding, like where is the, I don't understand this, what is happening right now? I think I am trying. And I started getting to a point more in middle school where I started saying, why should I even try? So what started as a problem of can't, because he didn't have the executive function skills to remember the assignment, make a plan, and follow it through to completion, became a problem of won't. He lost any motivation to pull himself from the quicksand of Ds and Fs that would end up following him all the way through two failed attempts at college, until finally he learned the skills he needed to get a degree, become a teacher, and then pivot to full-time coaching. Now, Seth Perler was a kid in the 80s. Today, he'd probably be assessed and given an Individualized Education Plan, or IEP, to address his needs. But he says the problem of mistaking can't for won't persists. You'd be surprised at how often I hear families tell me, 
We cannot get them to meet with us. We have the IEP, but they're not following it. They're so resistant to it. Instead, they're being told, you need to try harder rather than, hey, you need some skills. We're going to help you build these skill sets. We're going to support you in this way too. We've taught you math. We've taught you science. We've taught you language arts. We're going to teach you executive skills. We're going to teach you skills to organize or plan or manage your time. But it's tricky, says Perler, because sometimes a kid who seems to lack executive skills for schoolwork can focus and follow through in other areas of their life. For example, if you take this kid who maybe, let's say they're failing all their classes, right? And they're going home to play video games and they can execute perfectly on that or they're really into baseball and they can execute perfectly on that or they're an artist and they go paint stuff and, yeah. and they can organize the stuff and execute Okay, so then you'd say, oh, well, see, it is a matter of it's a can't and it won't. No, it's not. When it comes to things that are low interest, that are not motivating, that are not fun, and that feel traumatic or painful or uncomfortable or difficult, or every time you try, you've had all these experiences where in your nervous system, you have felt unsafe then that <laughs> asking somebody to execute on those tasks is way, 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 way harder. Kids in that situation need to be taught compassionately, says Perler, how to apply their executive function skills to schoolwork. Ideally, that happens before a student gets trapped in the mindset of failure that traditional A through F grades are so good at cementing. Perler remembers a few times in his schooling when a teacher was able to break through to him. Teachers that cared, that were kind, that were friendly, that were compassionate. When I had a teacher that was like that, I would try for them. I would work hard in class for them. Sometimes I would do the homework or study more. I would do more than I would do for any other class. Because A, if I liked the content, I would be more likely to do the, the work. If I liked the way we were doing the content, so if I liked, for example, doing a creative project to, to, about my learning, I might be more inclined to do it. And then if I'm cared about, if I felt like the teacher liked me, just liked me as a human being, cared about me, like it's so simple. I mean, teachers do need to have skills to teach the content, but it, it really, for me, began with, okay, I matter here. Seth Perler is an ADHD, executive function, and 2E coach. You can find him at sethperler.com. Now, we cannot motivate students or hold them accountable for learning unless they are showing up to school. And right now, a lot of kids are not. The COVID pandemic brought a huge spike in chronic absence, meaning a student misses at least three and a half weeks during a school year. The number of chronically absent students in U.S. schools is now nearly double what it was pre-pandemic. And so far, there is little sign of improvement. Today, one out of every four kids is chronically absent from school, and that includes both excused and unexcused absences. The trend is true across grade levels, but... Where the growth has happened most rapidly is actually in elementary schools. This is Hetty Cheng, Executive Director of Attendance Works. We're a nonprofit initiative that advances student success, addresses equity gaps by reducing chronic absence. Before the pandemic, there was about 3,550 so schools um, at the elementary school level that had extreme levels of chronic absence. Now it's close to 20,000. Obviously, all the closures and COVID quarantining and remote learning during the pandemic led to more student absences. But why are kids still missing so much school now that things are mostly back to normal? Chang says the pandemic 
broke our faith in schools. Whereas schools were sort of this steady thing that families could count on, now they became much more unpredictable for a couple years. And that undermined the sense that being in school matters. After so many years of closures at random intervals, it's easy to see why families might slip into thinking that way. I mean, how many times have kids shown up during another COVID surge only to be stuck spinning their wheels with a substitute because the teacher's out sick? Plus, says Chang, there's still a lot of confusion about health and safety. My kid has the sniffles. Do I keep them home or do I send them to school? My kid has a stomach ache. Do I keep them home during the pandemic? What we all got taught. I was on a webinar with nurses um, and there's a nurse from Alaska who said, I got really good at my job during the pandemic, which was to tell kids, no, you need to go home. Hmm. And now I have to change my job to convince families, no, you need to actually be in school. But we have to almost undo a mindset that we set, you know? And then the other thing I think that happens is that a lot a lot of times parents aren't on school campuses very much. We're protective because we, um, out of COVID or even a lot of the school safety issues. So parents may not see what kids are learning every day and how important that learning experience is because they're actually not seeing it. And if they're dealing with other challenges, transportation, their own health or other stuff, and they haven't had a chance to learn how critical the importance of these early years are, they may say, well, in, in the face of all these other things I have to do, getting to school isn't as important. What are the consequences? Like, can we see the cl clear evidence of, of that affecting kids or schools? Addressing chronic absence among our youngest learners is really critical because you're trying to build those habits of success that help you throughout your educational career. Um, and also learning is scaffolded. So if you don't learn, you know, key concepts around reading when you're in kindergarten, it's a lot more harder to keep up with reading. But it's also those habits of persistence. You know, chronic absence is connected to being less engaged, having less executive functioning skills. It's Getting kids into this habit of attendance, this routine of attendance is important for learning. It's also for developing those habits of success. I worry a lot when we see 20,000 elementary schools contending with high levels. Once you have 20% of all kids chronically absent, the churn that's kind of happening in the classroom isn't just affecting the kid who's chronically absent. Mm. Now you have, you know, a number of kids in any classroom missing school and when that happens, the churn affects both the ability of teachers to teach and kids to learn because teachers have to make decisions. Oh, Julie wasn't here today. Hetty was. Do I repeat or do I ask Julie to help Hetty? And now, you know, you're trying to keep instruction engaging. You also now have more disruptions in classroom norms. Hetty Chang is one of the top researchers on chronic absence in the whole country. A paper she published 15 years ago called for schools to be tracking all absences, not just the unexcused truancy they were monitoring at the time. Now the U.S. Department of Education monitors chronic absence. Fixing the problem starts with measuring it carefully, says Chang. I'll talk about Connecticut. It's one of the states where you're actually seeing them improve their data shows that it's working. And this is also because they're the only state in the country who produces 
data pretty publicly every month. Um, and so their chronic absence went from 12 to almost 24% uh, in the 21-22 school year. They were able to bring that down uh, to 20% last year. And the current data looks like they're at about 17.8. So a couple things they've done in Connecticut. One thing they have is they have good data. And good data is important because if you have good data, you can notice who's chronically absent so you can take action. Early in the pandemic, by January 21, the governor realized from the state data that they were really seeing high levels of chronic absence and they needed to develop a program. They created this thing called the Learner Engagement Attendance Program. Uh, so what LEAP does is a multiple home visit program. And so um, a home visit would be not that you would come in and talk about attendance, but it's relational. I would say, Julie, how are you? And hey, do you know about your summer learning opportunities? And then I might come back again a couple weeks later and say, hey, Julie, do you know um, who your teacher is? Have you gotten in contact with him? Oh, let me help you do that. They were taking kids who were chronically absent and prioritizing them for this additional outreach. And they served in that year about, I think, the first year or two of this, 8,000 families. And those kids, on average, if it was high school, they actually improved attendance by 20 percentage points and in elementary school by 10 percentage points. Wow. For the kids who got those visits compared to the other kids. Yes. Impressive. And what was so magical about that? Why did it work so well to increase attendance? Relationships matter. Kids knowing someone cares. Kids having someone in a time of great confusion to ask questions about. They, they created also a real infrastructure of supporting people doing quality home visits. And the home visitors would talk about how do they do this in a non-blaming, positive, engaging way. And then they would share stories with each other about success. So they, and I remember one guy talking about how um, there was a high school student. He calls the dad and says, hey, and this is a 21-22 school year. So people are really nervous. We're realizing the Delta variant is back. School's not going to quite open the way we want. Calls up to the dad Dad doesn't really want to talk to him. Finally, Dad says, you know, meet me at the car dealership in my, my neighborhood and I'll talk to you there. So he goes to the car dealership. The dad talks to him more and says, look, it's not me, it's Grandma. Mm -hmm. Grandma is terrified of my son going to high school, worried about the virus, worried about this is going to have an impact. So dad says, you want to get my kid to school? You got to talk to grandma. <laughs> so the home visitor finds a way to talk to grandma, talks to grandma about the safety measures, what's going on. Kid doesn't come the first day, but then does come the second day. Mm. And then the kid stays in texting contact with the home visitor and proceeds to come for the rest of the school year. You got to work with families to understand their concerns, to address their concerns, to even find out who in the family you need to talk to that's influencing what's happening with the child. And Chang says the all-too-common truancy policies that punish kids for being absent, even suspending students or sending their parents to court in some states, only further undermine trust between families and schools. If I, as a parent, feel like I kept my home, kid home, because I wanted to make sure they didn't spread disease, and then the school sends me a, a nasty truancy notification, that will make me angry, Right. I'm trying to do something for the public good and you're telling me I'm wrong and I'm, you know, and I hear some of that anecdotally. Don't know how prevalent it is, but we have a lot more kids missing a lot of school. So I suspect not very well-worded truancy notifications are out there in mass. 
So what we have to use is when kids miss school, this is sign for positive outreach to families to find out what's going on and how can I help. Especially since students most likely to have unexcused absences that trigger nasty truancy notifications are those with lower incomes and lack of affordable health care. How can you get a doctor's note to excuse your kid if you can't afford to take him to the doctor in the first place? Cheng's also not a fan of valorizing perfect attendance as a way to address absenteeism. We don't want perfect attendance for several reasons. One, I don't want kids who are really, truly sick and who might have an infectious disease to come to school. But equally, if you do perfect attendance, even for a month, the kids who are most challenged fall off that bandwagon so quick that they have no incentive to be part of this. If you're going to do something that's called, quote, perfect attendance, you want to do it for every week because you have to make sure that kids are in the, always in the game. And it's not about the incentive itself. You've got to be thinking about behavior you're trying to create. So mm. let's say you do incentives where every time the kid arrives on time, because that can be timeliness can, and not being tardy is, can be a goal, they get a lottery ticket. And then you, at the end of day Friday, at the end of the school day, you have a drawing and the kids can draw for some gift. Then you're doing a couple things. One is every time any kid shows up on time, you're acknowledging them. Oh, Julie, I saw you. You got here on time. Hey, here, have a lottery ticket. You know, kids need to feel heard and seen. Mm -hmm. Incentives well done are a way for kids to be heard, seen, and praised for good behavior. Let's talk a little bit about your personal history with this issue, if we could. So back in 2008, you published a report that was pretty influential. If you could take us back to that time, what was the thinking about absences, absenteeism, and school? I, I started this work because uh, a mentor of mine asked me to take a look at whether kids who were missing so much school in the early grades might be at risk for not reading by the end of third grade. At the time, I was a mom with kids in an elementary school. My oldest son was in a class and there was another young boy in the same class who was born the same day as my kid, was growing up with very different circumstances. He was growing up in public housing. His mom was trying to get off welfare. We would do joint birthday parties. In second grade, this young boy's mom um, died uh, very suddenly. Shortly after they had their joint birthday party, I think she just never had great access to health care, and he ended up in the child welfare system. Hmm. And we could see that he was missing a lot of school. And we, even with people who cared and knew, we didn't have the systems and supports to figure out quite a help him. And it was heartbreaking to see this curious kid not have the systems to support him and sustain him. And so I took on this work because I had my own poster child in my mind of who I knew we needed to make sure that we could change the trajectory for kids because it wasn't fair. Do you know what became of that student? I'm sorry. He later, he later died because he, um, I think, accidentally took fentanyl. An accidental overdose, likely. An accidental overdose, so... Um, I'm sorry about that. I mean, I can also see how that how that could serve as a real motivation. I mean, um, have you have you thought about in hindsight what more you or other members of the community could have done? And what can we take away from that? Do you think for those of us who are not in the school, 
we need to have systems in place so it's not just individuals trying to create it, but that we have partners, we have ways that we notice, ways that we can organize around kids, because this can't all be on the backs of educators to address. We need our civic partners, we need our public agencies, because some of the barriers that kids and families face are well beyond the capacity of school staff to address. You know, neighborhood safety, health care, access to food, basic needs, housing, shelter, those kinds of things are things that we really as a whole community, and then as a whole community, we have to work together to reestablish this routine of showing up to school every day. And this has to be woven together using data to inform how we do this work that allows us to re-engage all our students and families. And where it's most needed is in our highest poverty school districts, which have the fewest resources. What can community members do? Those of us who are not in positions of decision-making power or we don't work in schools, but we know kids who go to schools, maybe our kids are not having trouble with attendance. Is there a role for the community member? Absolutely. First of all, kids all respond to having a caring adult who cares about them and who can talk about showing up to school and making sure that they have um, the supports they need to get there. And actually all of us may know kids, but you can also, there is a whole effort uh, around finding mentors in communities who can volunteer at schools, who can also provide those supports. I also think that you can play a role in, data is publicly available. You want to know places that need supports? You can just go onto your state website and start to look for data about schools and places in your own community. You can talk to schools to find out what they have in place, but you can also just support this messaging of the importance of reestablishing the routine of attendance every day, Um, making sure that we don't go in with blame, but go in with support and encouragement and helping kids see how school, how showing up can contribute to their ability to reach their hopes and dreams. Hetty Chang is founder and executive director of Attendance Works. Thank you so much for your time today, Hetty. I really appreciate it. Um, Thank you. Top of Mind is a BYU radio podcast. Today's episode was produced by Elena Beck, Samuel Benson, and me, with help from James Hoops and Sam Payne. Sound design and audio engineering was done by Brandon Lewis and Kelsey Ney. And be sure to take a moment, if you would, and leave a rating or review for Top of Mind on your favorite podcast app. And that'll help the algorithm share Top of Mind with other people looking to become better citizens, kinder neighbors, and more effective advocates. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon. 